Hello, and welcome to Cultural Conversations with the International Hub. We are committed to helping you navigate global business. Throughout this series, we will have conversations with global business professionals and experts. Hello, my name is Dylan, and today I will be interviewing Jonathan Young. Jonathan, how did you get where you are today? Okay, so I grew up in Connecticut. Um, I came to BYU Oh, probably in 2003, um, served a mission in there, and then um, my uh, while I was on my mission, my dad was uh, he started up a sports training facility targeting high school athletes in Connecticut. And when I came back, I I went through the program. And I thought this is really cool. I want to do that, and um, so I started studying exercise science with a minor in business. But all my uh, kind of uh, mentors and leaders back in Connecticut, they said, that's interesting, you should probably switch the two so you can be more <laughs> dynamic <laughs> going forward. And so I did, and that involved uh, taking more accounting classes, mm -hmm. and um, I, uh, um, I was better at it than I thought I would be, and I liked it more than I thought I would. And so I decided to pursue uh, accounting here, so I um, got into the junior corps, and I was um, very blessed to get into the, to the MAC as well, and that was cool. Um, then uh, after I graduated, I started with uh, Deloitte um, auditing in uh, New York, uh, financial services firms, mostly uh, big private equity firms like the Blackstone Group. And um, that was very interesting, really big learning experience. And um, it was fun to work in New York as well. That was always my um, target city because that's uh, kind of the area where I'm from. And uh, an opportunity came up uh, for uh, my wife and me to transfer to London with Deloitte. Um, same client as well, and they speak the language, and uh, I could go over as a qualified accountant, uh, which, which worked out well, and so we decided to take ourselves over there, and uh, I started auditing with, uh, with Deloitte in London for a little while, and then I switched into corporate finance and um, specialized in transaction services, so a lot of financial due diligence on the buy side and the sell side M&A. Um, and then after uh, about 18 months of that, I switched into, well, one of my friends was uh, in, in, um, in church, my ward. He was um, uh, starting up a small distressed investor, um, uh, private equity. And so um, I thought it might be fun to do that. And he invited me to be a part of the really small startup fund that he had. And um, so I joined that and um, had a lot of really good experiences there. Um, we did deals in... Australia, um, some in the UK, a lot in, in Germany, um, and uh, then just about a year ago, um, I um, took another position with uh, an EQT portfolio company called Independent Vet Care, and so I manage um, a lot of the acquisitions that they do, and it's a veterinary services platform, and so if there's a local vet uh, that, uh, that you go to on the corner of, I don't know, state and Maine or whatever it would be, um, it's likely that that vet is owned by uh, another big investor that does a lot of back office work for them and um, and uh, kind of helps to get the purchasing synergies in um, to improve the cash flows. So that's what I do um, now. And so we have operations uh, in the UK and then seven other uh, kind of rest of Europe countries. Interesting. So when you were moving, when you're transitioning from the United States to the UK, what did you make any preparations? What what went into that besides just having a position opening up and taking it? Oh well, um, Deloitte is really good when they um, uh, kind of want to move people around. They have something called 
when I was there anyway, um, a global deployment program. Uh, so they kind of put you up and give you a stipend uh, in wherever, uh, I guess, city they want to, to put you up in. Um, I was a bit young in the firm to do that, and so um, I just uh, liaised or networked directly with the, uh, the Deloitte recruiter on the Europe side. Uh, in London, and so um, I had to resign from the U.S. firm and sign up with the with the U.K. firm. Uh, but as as far as preparations go, um, it did uh, very little. I mean, we we thought that we'd just be okay with kind of the English language being the same, and uh, that uh, um, that actually ended up being a bit of a challenge because when we first got there, there's so many different kind of uh, parts of the U.K. where people come from and speak uh, differently and. Kind of behave differently, and so we could couldn't really understand half the people we were talking to them at first. <laughs> uh, but um, we kind of kind of got there eventually, um, and it's it's been a, a lovely experience. My wife she uh, she has a blog, and um, she uh, thought it'd be useful as uh, an American expat to uh, to share with anybody else who wanted to come over some of the things that uh, were kind of different uh, as uh, for Americans to learn when uh, they're in London, like. Uh, if you don't hail a bus, like it's not going to stop. <laughs> it just keeps on going, uh, and um, I don't know, ground floor versus first floor, that kind of thing. And so some directions are kind of, kind of wonky. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a wonderful city. Um, I, I recommend it to anybody who's thinking internationally to uh, to look at London. Interesting. I'd miss mini buses in London, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, in your time there. Uh, how has your perspective on the U.S. changed? Hmm, that that is a good question. Um, yeah. Um, well, politically, it's changed quite a bit. I was on kind of one end of the spectrum, and I've moved much more toward the middle now that I've been in kind of from the U.K. the outside looking in. Uh, so that has been uh, a remarkable change. As far as uh, from a professional perspective. Uh, I've uh, gained much more of an appreciation for uh, people who just come from different backgrounds and think differently, and that kind of uh, the the U.S. way of doing things or um, uh, the New York way of doing things is not necessarily the best way to do things or the right way to do things. And so having international exposure has been um, a real eye-opener, and I, I feel like it's made me more rounded as well. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very grateful for, for the experience. And I'd like to continue to stay there uh, as well. Um, we, uh, we're coming up for, um, uh, we're going to apply for a definite leave to remain uh, in August. And so if that's the case, then we can stay there and uh, we don't need a visa. We just kind of um, do what we want. Um, but uh, so, yeah, politically, it's been, it's uh, changed my views. Uh, uh, professionally, it's been great to get a lot of exposure, not just to, kind of different standards in the way people uh, speak and do things, but how, how uh, they behave. And uh, it's it's been nice to kind of be kind of the different person in the room, the American uh, in the room, uh, kind of that's what I'm referred to often, the American guy. And that's been kind of fun. Um, but it's uh, it's been a good eye-opening experience. Interesting. Um, so drilling on that a little bit more, what is it like to be the American in the room? What is that dynamic like? <laughs> um, well, let's see. So, yeah, there's things that uh, that people will say that I will uh, kind of. I mean, it's all English. I understand the words that are coming out of their mouth, but um, 
I just have to ask uh, kind of what, what certain things mean. Um, and when people, uh, uh, I don't know, when I'm on the phone or just uh, in, the, in the meeting uh, first without having spoken to somebody and I, I meet with them, they're um, kind of taken aback. And what's funny is that they ask, uh, they don't assume that I'm American. They'll make a point to ask, so are you uh, Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm not sure exactly why they do that, but uh, I said, no, I'm uh, from uh, America. Um, and I guess they've had some experiences with uh, Canadians who have the same experience, and uh, they will assume that they are American, and they'll say, no, I, I am Canadian. And so they uh, will be sensitive to that. Um, as far as uh, uh, culturally uh, being in the UK and being the American, it's not so different a thing in, in London itself. I spent a lot of time up north uh, as part of my investment um, experience, and uh, closer to Bristol, we live in Bath now. And um, they uh, it's just kind of a, another point of conversation for people to bring in, like, oh, well, are you watching American football? And uh, I don't know, what do you think of the food here, kind of thing. And so it's just more of a uh, kind of a uh, topic of discussion, I guess. Uh, nobody feel, feels like, they ask me a lot about politics as well, because um, some of the things that we do here are just so different uh, to what's done in the rest of the world. and, and especially to the UK, kind of our, our distant cousins now, I guess you can call them. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, they're very respectful. They, they um, kind of uh, will expect me be, to be different uh, from them, which is, which is fine because I, I am different from them. Uh, but it's, uh, uh, it's I, I, I really enjoy getting to know lots of different people and uh, they and kind of their cultures and what they like to eat and what they like to do on the weekends. They love their football. Um, I've I don't think I've ever enjoyed soccer <laughs> over here. You don't have a team? Um, no. Well, when I when I was up in a, a town called Sheffield, they have a they have a, a um, championship league team called uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, they're the Owls or something. And so, if there's anybody I'd like to see win, I guess it would be uh, the Sheffield Wednesday, just because you had some really intense fans. Um, mo most of the people over there, they say. When they're talking about their teams, they, they refer to the, um, like as if they are a part of the team, like, we did really well, and uh, you uh, did not do well, or something like that. And so it's, uh, they, they really love their, their football, their soccer, and they really love their, uh, their pubs. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's always fun to talk to them about it. Pivoting a little bit here, what were the differences you noticed between how a business is managed in the UK versus here in the US? Well, there's a, there's a spectrum in both places, both in the U.S. and in the U.K. Um, I guess on one end of the spectrum would be kind of a brash or straight-to-the-point uh, kind of person, and, and then the other end would be a bit more measured, a bit more methodical. So you have both ends of the spectrum in both places. But from my experience in the U.K., um, it's uh, it's more of the people are a bit more measured, uh, maybe thoughtful, uh, less uh, frenetic uh, when it comes to, to managing uh, to management, not just uh, businesses, but people as well. Um, and there's a bit more, um, I'm not, I wouldn't say kind of pomp and circumstance, but a, uh, um, I don't know, they just do things a little bit more uh, slowly I guess <laughs> over there and it's not in a not in a bad way at all it's just uh, they uh, will take the time to, to get to know you to sit down to um, kind of 
uh, if sometimes it feels more respectful than if uh, we're with an American colleague and we just kind of like get in the room, get down to business, uh, and uh, kind of um, dispense with any formalities. Um, so uh, that's, yeah, that's kind of a difference in the UK. They love the tea as well. They'll always offer you a cup of tea and they're always drinking tea. <laughs> so, uh, which is different in the, uh, in the US. So that's been my experience with the, with the UK management. Interesting. Um, you're talking about, or you mentioned how they have a more measured approach to business. Uh, is that the same way with, with its decision making? Oh, um, not really sure. I really, can't really comment on that. I mean, both sides of the pond, you have very intelligent people, very hardworking, um, and uh, uh, bright people. Just the approaches are, are a little bit different. It seems that uh, there's some, there seems to be kind of more unwritten rules in the UK than there are in the US, and particularly in New York, which is where kind of my professional experience has been. Um, and that might lend itself to, um, or that might be attributed to uh, the UK, the people there, it's just a, a much older culture. And there's a kind of a lot of um, etiquette uh, that, that people will um, try to employ and to stand on. And so I think there is a bit more formality there, um, which kind of feels like things are slowed down a little bit. So you talk things out, you get to know people, um, and uh, it's not perhaps as brash as something may in reality be or stereotypically be here in the, in the U.S., but from my experience, that's, uh, that's how it's been. Mm -hmm. You mentioned etiquette. Um, would you maybe go a little bit deeper with that? Sure. Um, so one experience I had when I was uh, um, at Deloitte in corporate finance, um, uh, we were advising um, uh, a buyer on, uh, it was uh, the Nikkei, so the big Japanese um, news corporation, uh, media um, uh, corporation. And uh, they were attempting to buy um, the Financial Times from uh, Pearson, uh, which does, um, among other things, a lot of uh, publishing, like some of your textbooks might be published by Pearson. And um, this was the most, uh, I guess, extreme difference in culture or, or etiquette and, and formality that that I witnessed it um, because when the executives uh, from uh, Nikkei came over, um, there was you know a, a lot of a lot of bowing and uh, um, so the advisors with whom we were working uh, were very particular about having them only in certain meetings. Like if it got down into too much detail, they quickly took them out of the room, not because they were hiding anything, but only because uh, that wasn't really that was kind of it seemed like that was beneath them or just unnecessary for them uh, to know. Whereas on other deals with, um, I don't know, UK or, or German or uh, Swiss um, buyers or sellers, they will be in the detail, they will be in the room, they will be in negotiating with us. Um, but uh, that one experience with um, a, uh, a Japanese buyer uh, was quite different. Uh, and so um, I've never been over um, to uh, to Japan, but I don't know. That's uh, that seems like uh, kind of the way that they do things, and it didn't it didn't impair the the deal at all. It didn't. Um, it was just a, a different approach. Um, again, my international experience has been really helpful for me to help me understand that there are a lot of ways of doing something correctly, and there's there's hardly ever just one right way to do it. Thank you. 
Moving on to uh, mergers and acquisitions or cro- or deal making, what are some of the differences in cross border deals versus domestically sourced deals? Um, that is a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, loaded question. Because um, because uh, well, in the U.S., um, the, the U.S. is enormous. Uh, okay, it's, it's I think geographically, it's the size of China, um, and you have a lot of diversity just within the U.S. itself, and so. You have people who might do things slower or more quickly or whatever. And so within the U.S., there can be a lot of, um, uh, I guess, domestically, there can be a lot of uh, uh, differences uh, in uh, how a buyer or seller will, will approach M&A. As far as uh, Europe goes, um, and in the U.K. in particular, um, I worked on a lot of um, kind of cross-border deals. and. Really, the only thing that was uh, different for me, uh, from what I observed, um, was other than the one Japanese example that I that I gave, uh, th- was just kind of the food and um, the language. The I guess the the local language, but um, everybody speaks English over there. Um, of course, the Brit- the British do, but the the Germans, the French, the Italians, they all uh, are proficient uh, in English. Um, they all kind of operate on the on the same level, I think. Um, in my experience, working with some Scandinavian uh, buyers, like so, someone from Sweden, they might um, do things a little bit more quickly, or I don't skim over the detail. I don't, I'm not sure. That's just been my experience. It's I can't I can't speak for a whole country or for a whole uh, culture, uh, but something that uh, has been. Uh, apparent and clear across uh, any border between any country is that uh, they want to be respected uh, with their input and with their time. Uh, they um, will most likely speak English, <laughs> so, so that's, that's good. Um, and I think they, I mean, each, each deal is uh, emotionally charged and there's going to be some, some hubris or some pride involved. And so I think if uh, Anyone who will just try to be respectful of whatever culture it is, if they just try to be transparent and uh, try to get a win-win situation out of any M&A situation, uh, then uh, there won't be any uh, real issues. I think that I think the issues come up um, from from what I've seen uh, when there's been a little bit of break a breakdown in communication uh, because we're on, on one side we were uh, I guess the UK buyers uh, against a. a Swiss seller, and there's only a breakdown um, in kind of the negotiations, just because emotions got high. It wasn't really because of any difference in culture or location or or language, um, but it was just some of us were just being a bit impatient in trying to to get our point across and to understand the other side. Interesting. Um, how? How, how do the different, uh, in your experience, was there any difference in the way that they approach the negotiation? Um, honestly, no, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, the, when you get to a certain size of transactions, yeah. uh, and especially if there, if there are advisors involved, and if, especially if there's a bid process, yeah. then it, it becomes pretty formal and pretty yeah. regimented, where you will send in an expression of interest, you'll send in 
um, I don't know, a, a preliminary offer, you'll get invited into the bidding process, you'll get more access to the books. And this is just kind of universal yeah. um, in, the, in the investment process. Um, and so uh, I'm not sure if there's too much room for uh, differences in, in culture or in uh, approach, um, other than perhaps some uh, Asian cultures who may have done things differently for, uh, for centuries. It's uh, it's pretty standard uh, in in Europe, including uh, between uh, Europe and the U.S. From what I've seen. So working in M and A, how is uh, tell about integration? Um, integration at my uh, current firm, which was uh, which is a veterinary services platform, uh, is is a critical activity um, because there are purchasing synergies and, uh, I don't know, revenue initiatives and back office uh, operations that, that we assume and that we implement. And so if it's not well integrated onto our platform with the IVC way of doing things, then we're not adding value and we're destroying value, uh, essentially. And so um, in the UK, um, the, the IVC platform was started in 2011 and it's been around for six or seven years now. And they have a very well honed, or I guess, um, uh, I guess, well developed integration process. And we have integration in mind uh, from the very beginning uh, of the deal, uh, of the of the process in due diligence. How is this going to fit onto our platform? What do we need to let our integration team know about, from a tax perspective, legal perspective, finance, um, and that's um, a big part of my role. Uh, in another um, uh, business that I was a part of, which was kind of direct private equity investment, we tended just to purchase things kind of as they were uh, and didn't really bring them onto a platform or anything, but um, so they weren't really integrated into uh, our portfolio per se, but we just tried to fix them as they were with our own uh, kind of protocol and way of doing things. But uh, as far as put, bringing it onto a platform and having it interrelate with um, our operations that we already have in place, uh, it was completely different. And um, we, in 2017, in February 2017, um, IVC purchased or merged with uh, another big European um, veterinary services platform called Evidencia. And Evidencia kind of has their own way of doing things, and uh, they integrate uh, surgeries onto their platform as well, but not as much of a detailed way that um, IVC does. And so we are still, we're a, year, a year on, we're still trying to figure out how the best way to do that is with all these surgeries who have uh, been kind of semi-integrated in one way, uh, whereas we want to get them fully integrated onto our platform. And that can be frustrating for a couple of reasons. One, uh, it, it might be frustrating for, for a, a Danish or Dutch or German or Swiss or whoever um, uh, surgery uh, owner or previous owner to have been kind of integrated onto one platform, but now uh, this foreign buyer, this UK buyer has come in and now we have to do it again. So that might be frustrating, uh, but also it's gonna be much more involved so we can uh, realize as much synergy as we can um, from our operations and from our um, suppliers as well. Excellent, thank you. Um, you mentioned that when you're with the, the private equity, you wouldn't really integrate, but you might try to fix things, mm -hmm. uh, make things better. Uh, did you, when you would do this, did you target many 
uh, European firms, I mean, besides UK? Yes. How, how do they view you as an English firm coming in? Hmm. That is, um, I don't know, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> um, I, I, worked on, uh, I worked on some, uh, some deals, in, including uh, DD and, and, and execution um, for some businesses based in, uh, in Israel and in Germany. Uh, but um, I, didn't, I never saw it all the way through. And so integration, uh, I'm not uh, too keenly aware of how it went on the rest of Europe. Um, but uh, even in the UK, there's plenty of uh, diversity that we have because we have several, several investments there. And um, uh, I mean, just the difference between the North and the South or somebody coming from London or somebody coming from a private equity fund, uh, there would be some jitters because a lot of people still think private equity, there's going to be job cuts. And so um, one, of the, one of the first things that we did once it was disclosed that there was um, uh, a buyer and that it was a private equity buyer and that it was us is that we went and spoke with everybody and we said this is what's going to happen. We were very transparent. We said these are the issues that have, been, uh, that have led to this situation because we were a distressed investor. And we often purchased businesses out of administration or in the, U in the U.S. you call it bankruptcy. Uh, and so we would uh, try to be as uh, comforting, I guess, is not maybe the right, <laughs> the right word, but uh, not completely transparent by picking out people and saying, you are not going to be here tomorrow. But just giving people, uh, a, a, I know, trying to be as real and as adult with them uh, and also as sensitive with them as, as we could because um, once we've stepped into the situation they've already been in a distressed situation probably for months maybe for years and so we needed uh, to be sensitive uh, to the situation uh, we were also transparent and say like the business is failing or has failed and so something has to change and that um, that often involved headcount and so as far as people um, getting, uh, giving us pushback uh, from wherever we were, from uh, whichever country we went into, um, there was always a little bit more pushback because we were from, uh, we were private equity, and it doesn't have the, uh, the best PR, I guess you can say. Excellent, thank you. Mm. So shifting gears away from uh, M&A, um, in a lot of different cultures, they can uh, just what they view as needed for public disclosure can be different from one country to another. What are some of the differences between the U.S. and the U.K.? Are there really any differences that you've noticed? As far as uh, like financial reporting yeah. uh, and, and disclosures, mm, honestly, the biggest difference that I've that I've seen is well, I guess I guess two things. One, uh, U.S. disclosure times um, seems to be much deeper and much more detailed. Um, I mean, when I was when I was studying here, the the difference between the U.S. gap and any other gap or IFRS is that it was um, kind of well, that the the latter was much more principles based, uh, as a former is much more um, explicit. Um, but a lot of businesses are moving to IFRS, and so and I I, th I believe uh, a lot of IFRS um, I guess standards here in the U.K. in the U.S. as well, and so. I think that convergence is uh, is going to be very useful. Um, but as far as um, I don't know, in the, in, I don't, I'm not sure what, exactly what it is like in the 
in the U.S., but for, in the U.K., if you're a small company, obviously you don't have to disclose as much, which makes it difficult if you invest only in small businesses like what, uh, uh, like what I did for a little while. Um, but as far as um, cross-border M&A or even domestically uh, getting information, uh, it's, it's fairly standard. How are the values different between the UK and the US? Well, one of the one of the uh, I guess values that I that I noticed uh, pretty quickly uh, once I left uh, Big Four New York and and went to Big Four London is that the FaceTime culture uh, in the US is much uh, more pronounced and enforced uh, than it is in the UK. And what I mean by that is if you're finished with your work at eight o'clock, but everybody else is staying till eleven it's probably a good idea if you just stay until 11 with the rest of the team just because um, it may have just been my team who I was working with, but um, I've heard from other people as well that uh, in New York, like you are perceived as hardworking if you are in the office. I think it's changed, maybe changing a bit with um, more relaxed and uh, kind of remote working uh, technology. But in the UK, you get your job done, you work hard, uh, and um, you can uh, just kind of do what you want to do. You don't have to be outside the partner's office all the time. Um, uh, they value their holidays over there much more, much more, I can say. Um, uh, an example is when, uh, so when I um, was married, or when I got married, um, I was, uh, it was in April, so kind of close to, I guess, post-busy season uh, from an audit perspective. And um, yeah, my team was still on uh, my, honey my honeymoon was still, still expecting me to like answer emails and uh, kind of um, pull them out of I don't know, tricky situations that I, only I could um, I don't know, answer or something, which was ridiculous because I was only away for like five days. Uh, but uh, in, the US, in the UK, um, uh, my employers have been uh, much more, uh, I guess it's been much more important to them that um, when I'm in the office, I'm in the office, when I'm off on holiday, then I'm off on holiday, and so that's respected, um, which is much appreciated. And they have much more holiday over uh, generally in the in the UK and in Europe as well. Um, and as far as the month of like August is concerned in Europe, things just really slow down because most people just kind of go on holiday, uh, and so that is just to be expected. That emails and phone calls won't probably won't be answered, and so. I think a lot of uh, deal making slows down, um, not just domestically but cross border as well. Interesting. So, what's what is the difference between what's on time in the UK versus the US? Is there a difference there? What's on time? Yeah, like being punctual. Yeah. Or, uh, yeah what does it mean to be punctual in the UK? Oh, um, <laughs> well, I think. Uh, um, well, interesting question. I'm trying to I'm racking my brain to think of when there was a. Uh, uh, a time where it really stood out to me when people either did or didn't care about punctuality, but I think generally, um, I mean, similar to what I said about uh, how people behave regardless of language or culture uh, in, in, in Europe, is that as long as you try to respect people and treat them like a human being and um, uh, be honest and find a good solution that works for everybody, then um, you will have done your job well. And so... Uh, regarding punctuality and getting things done and on time, um, there are deadlines that need to be hit, and particularly in M&A when reports need to be finished and files need to be, uh, or I guess reports need to be filed and uh, money needs to be moved, uh, that if there's a deadline that there is 
that is the dead line um, and things rarely move. Um, and with my experience in the US, it was uh, all based around uh, audit deadlines and so and filing with the SEC. So that was pretty important. And so I'd say in both situations um, that it's it's very strict. Yeah. Um, as far as availability and being it and having somebody on the ground and having an expectation that something will get done, uh, similar to what we talked about before with different values, um, you can't really uh, expect somebody to get a, uh, a whole lot of work done when they're on holiday or um, uh, when it's late in the summer when most of the continent kind of slows down a little bit. So those are expectations that you just need to manage uh, yourself. Um, whereas it's kind of a 24-7 culture here in, in the U.S., it's, it's, uh, there's much more balance, I think, in, in Europe and in the U.K. Um, so let's talk about the regulatory environment in the U.K. Um, what effects does it have in the way that business is conducted there versus the U.S.? Is there any difference? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I, I know that um, employment law and regulation is strict. Um, uh, only because one of the, the deals that we worked on there is a distressed uh, business and um, I was kind of tossed in as a financial director and so um, I managed the books and the budgeting and um, and uh, all the all the financial accounting and speaking with suppliers but I also managed payroll and so uh, any deficiencies or kind of holes in the uh, the payroll process um, prior to completion that we didn't pick up uh, definitely came apparent when I started having to um, process pay slips and pay people. And um, I just recall um, both there and in Australia in particular that employment law is something that you cannot um, cannot mess with or pass over or put a blind eye to because uh, the regulators will find you. <laughs> because I don't know, if, uh, if somebody's supposed to have holiday and they don't get it or uh, we're supposed to be paid something um, uh, and they don't get it, then... Uh, I mean, in, in your situation or my situation, I will speak up about it. Uh, and, some, and in some cases, people speak directly to the regulator, and then you get a, regu um, uh, a message from the regulator. And so um, I'm not sure how different it is in the U.S. My assumption is that it's a bit uh, lighter, uh, given that you only have, like, a two weeks' notice, the kind of thing. In, in Europe, if I want to leave my employer, it's three months. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a long time, which does different things for the, for the job market, but... Um, anyway, uh, employment regulation is is uh, heavy uh, in uh, in Europe, particularly in, in the UK, which has been my experience. Other regulation, um, they have a, a lot of regu regula <clears throat> regulation around, um, uh, uh, let's say, like financial instruments and uh, even being able to uh, point. If, for example, if one of if somebody at uh, one of our surgeries in the UK. Um, uh, points somebody toward um, uh, a, a lending scheme or something that they can get into so they can uh, kind of pay us back. To, in order for them to do that, not even recommend, but to say, well, this is available uh, to you if you want to help, need help paying off your bills. Like that person needs to be registered with the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, and so um, that might be the same case in the U.S., but in the U.K., like you have to have your, your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Um, and it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's quite heavily uh, regulated from from my perspective. Interesting. Um, 
kind of the topic du jour when it comes to the UK is Brexit. Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> how has Brexit impacted you? Oh, golly. Um, well, me personally, uh, someone who is uh, a foreigner, an immigrant over there, and who would like to stay for a while, uh, I've spoken with a few people, uh, and it, uh, when we um, apply for indefinite leave to remain, I've been told that it's just going to kind of depend on the person who you get on the day. And so if you, it was, it was quite clear, it was a very close vote um, uh, of those who voted to leave and those who voted to uh, remain. And so it's a 50-50 chance that I get somebody who doesn't, uh, who doesn't want to, I guess, have immigrants in there. So that's, that how, that's how it affects us personally, uh, my wife and I. Um, uh, let's see, when we were, the vote took place in, um, in June 2016. And my wife and I were in Australia, and we were getting paid in pounds, uh, but our personal expenses were in Australian dollars. And so just about overnight, um, it became 50%, if not uh, twice as expensive uh, to be over there, just because the, the pound just tanked uh, against all other currencies. So that was one thing. Um, and then uh, when I returned to the UK, I worked at this door manufacturer up in, in Sheffield, um, where I was the, the FD for a while. And um, it wasn't too severe, but we, uh, some of our um, uh, materials, uh, material costs were creeping up because we sourced from mainland Europe. Uh, and uh, it was just more expensive because the, the pound was weaker. Uh, so that was a direct and a real uh, impact. Um, but and a lot of people said that as a result of it, as a result of the Brexit vote that happened in June 16, that there would be a lot of uncertainty as well. And there is uncertainty, um, but it hasn't affected uh, M&A um, volume or value nearly as much as uh, has been uh, expected. I mean, it's still it was 2017 was a great year for for M&A. 2016 finished all right. Uh, 2018 um, is expected to still be uh, fairly robust. Um, but then 2019, March 2019, is when the UK, uh, I mean, that's when the, the clock stops yeah. uh, and uh, kind of the separation has to be clear. And so things will probably get a bit more dicey uh, after that. One of the ways that it's going to affect the UK is with um, uh, talent and people leaving. And actually, uh, uh, in our business, um, a lot of our um, nurses uh, who work at veterinary surgeries are, um, I guess, EU citizens or rest of Europe citizens. And so it's a bit ambiguous as to what's going to happen with them. Will they want to stay? Will they want to leave? Um, and so there's, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in business with regard to where is the currency going to be? What are, how expensive are our um, materials going to be? How uh, much better priced or how much more appealing where will UK products be if the uh, pound falls. It's been coming back, um, which has been nice. I have some of my student loans here that are denominated in uh, US dollars, and so the rise of the pound against the dollar helps me to pay it off more easily. Uh, but if a pound, if it goes down again, then I'm, uh, it will take me a little bit longer to pay it off. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, affecting, it's affecting a lot of uh, kind of everything uh, in business. If not directly and uh, tangibly, then there's just that cloud of uncertainty. Interesting. Um, kind of just shifting gears to the end of the episode. I'm really grateful for your time today. Um, what advice would you give to a business person who's planning to work in the UK? 
Oh, I would, um, I would recommend that they read the Financial Times, that they read The Economist, not just because they're produced in the UK, but because it's good to have a global perspective and be able to comment on things uh, of what's not only happening in the US, but in Europe and in Asia and uh, in Africa and other places. So I think being a bit more, um, and I'm speaking from my experience, I guess what would I have done to, to um, prepare, better prepare for life in the UK? Um, so just be better, well-rounded, well well-informed. Let's see. <laughs> I needed to upgrade my wardrobe. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't mind kind of slumming it a bit when I was in, in New York. And I know plenty of people will have plenty of different opinions, but uh, um, in my experience when I was uh, uh, working in London, it was, it was, I felt that it was more important for me to be uh, more sharply dressed <laughs> when I was there. Um, so I would uh, recommend you consider that. And um, just keep networking and talk to people. That's something that kind of comes easily to me. And it's been, and it hasn't always been for different jobs, but sometimes it's just been, I think your, your job is interesting. Can I talk with you about it? Or this deal uh, was, uh, that just closed last week or last month, um, or that you just announced, uh, sounds really neat. And it's, and it's related to an industry that I've been in. Uh, let's talk about it. Let's grab a coffee kind of thing. Um, and, and I've been very pleasantly, pleasantly surprised uh, to see that a lot of people, most people, no matter what country they're in, will be happy to, to chat with you about it. And so just get to know people, let people get to know you, be genuine, uh, and um, going with an open mind and know that there are many ways to do uh, something correctly. Excellent, thank you. One final question. Um, what is the difference in how success is measured in the UK versus the US? What does it mean to be a successful employee? That's a great question. That's something I should be asking myself. <laughs> um, okay, so in the UK, what does it mean to be a great employee? Uh, golly, somebody, somebody who's dedicated, somebody who is, um, man, I think it'd be, I think there'd be a lot of crossover between the UK and the US. Somebody, who, I don't know, who's trustworthy, respectful. Um, they... Uh, they work hard, they communicate well. Um, let's see, they're, they're friendly, they, they, try to, they try to help you with something if they have time to, to help you with something. Um, technically, I'd say what, uh, what would help me to be a better employee would be if I could um, not just master my role, but understand how it, uh, my role kind of ripples throughout the rest of the organization. Uh, understand that if I miss something, in um, I don't know, a report or in a budget that I put together, where is that going to um, kind of rear itself, uh, its head down the line? So understanding the whole organization uh, and your role in it is, uh, uh, I'd say, um, a good employee will, will do that. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say that works for either the US or, or the UK. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Glad to be here. Well, that's all for now. For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to Cultural Conversations with International Hub. Thanks for listening and join us next time.